cliffcentral.com. Hi, you're listening to the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. My usual comrade, um, partner, uh, Greg Nicholson, is not with us today. He's not in studio. So you'll be in my somewhat capable hands for the next next 60 minutes or so. Today we'll be talking a bit about the Islamic State, um, ISIS. Um, they've really, really shocked the world over the past couple of years. Um, and a lot of us, you know, wake up to, to headlines, newspapers, and just wonder what on earth is going on. Where's the world going? We'll be chatting to somebody who's actually spending a lot of time, one might say, fighting ISIS um, and trying to engage directly with their potential recruits and, and, and some might say wannabe recruits and who's actually on the front lines in some ways of that battle from a distance somewhat. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jasmine Opperman. She's the Africa Director for the Terrorism Research and Analysis Consortium. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for the invitation. And hi, listeners. <laughs> Jasmine, I mean, when you say, you know, we see an Africa director, we hear terrorism research analysis. Those are those are sort of these big words. Is it is it fair to say that you are keeping an eye on the bad guys? You are watching out for what Al Qaeda is up to, for what Boko Haram is up to, for what ISIS is up to, and advising advising the rest of us who can't really make heads or tails of what's going on. I am truly in a privileged position. Yes, uh, as my as the title indicates, I am responsible for tracking and monitoring all um, extremist activities on the African continent, and that then goes from North Africa right through to Southern Africa, where we look at the various groups as you have mentioned: Boko Haram, Al Shabaab, Aquam, the Allied Democratic Front, but we have in the DRC, and all these players and the impact of that. On community life It is not always a question of sitting behind your laptop And mm. have a laptop analysis on the table It is about going out with our networks And start engaging people that's being affected And that is the central part And that is the part which I think is the most important For any counter-terror analyst Is to be actually out there gaining street-wide not street-wise knowledge, and that is my objective. And I really want to dig into what you mean by street-wise knowledge and what you mean by you know engaging communities. But I'm just curious: were you always were you always interested in this line of work? Did you? Yes, you're talking to a former spy. <laughs> I was in the intelligence. I like how you say that and laugh. <laughs> it's clear that you're dead serious. Please, I am, please tell all. I am dead serious. I've joined. In, I've worked 15 years in the intelligence. It was then known as the National Intelligence Service. Okay. Uh, ended up as provincial manager in the Eastern Cape. Um, and terrorism and counterterrorism, needless to say, always being part of my job description. Not only analysis, but also operational work, uh, where we've in- started engaging. Communities, and that is actually where my interest started taking root, is the immense value you get from people out there. It cannot be ignored. We talk about a terrorism expert. I don't see myself as an expert. If you want to talk about a Boko Haram expert, talk to the communities in northeast Nigeria having to live with that fear. Those are the experts and those are the people I love to talk to and love to get their knowledge from. But that is where my interest comes from. I've been in intelligence. I resigned uh, and started going into the private sector to be able to more willingly and more openly and more transparently counter what they're trying to achieve. 
Jasmine, do you remember when you first first heard about ISIS? Do you remember first the first sort of rumblings or rumors or or you first hearing about this thing called Islamic State? Do you remember when yes, that might have been? I do. And it, it takes me back to the um Iraq. It takes me back to Al Qaeda in Iraq. Mm. Um the tensions between Zarqawi uh, and Bin Laden, where he was actually not accepted by Bin Laden because he was so extremist and so violent in his behavior. And from that moment on, as AQI started transforming itself into the Islamic State. So what is AQI? Uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, sorry. They were the, on the front lines combating the um, U.S. and coalition partners in Iraq at that point in time. And they were quite extremist in their religious interpretation, even too much for Bin Laden, and that's why you had the split between Al Qaeda and between ISIS. That has happened. Did you foresee the sort of global force that ISIS has become when you first sort of heard about this? Did you, did you in any way anticipate just what a what an entity that ISIS has become for you know what sounds like every country around the world is is, is having to stop and think about what's their response and what's their strategy? To be honest with you, no. But what the Islamic State has done successfully at that point in time was to pull what I called one of the greatest coups of all time by focusing on the, those that have not been brought in by al-Qaeda because of their strict rules for joining the group. The Islamic State simply moved beyond, focused on the, the youth, focused on those that are not religiously or ideologically that well informed, mm. brought them in. Called a caliphate, the Islamic State's ultimate end objective, which does not differ from Al-Qaeda. And by calling a territorial area as an Islamic State, just spiraled in terms of foreign fighters coming in. Because here now, we have a group that is giving something tangible to an extremist ideology. I think it caused most people completely by surprise and added the way they used social networks in spreading their message is truly, truly one of their great, great successes. How many South Africans do you think have have gone over and, and sort of made the journey to Syria to join? 34. 34? 34? Now, if so I was expecting more of an estimate. That's a really, that's a really precise, that's a really yeah, precise we, number. Um, to, to, to indicate to you, there are 34 South Africans, which I have on my list confirmed, four of them, Islamic State fighters, to have been killed. Um, the other two, I've lost track with at this moment in time. I'm not sure if they're still alive. But you don't have to go to the caliphate, the Islamic State, as a fighter to show your ideology. A person from PE at this point in time mm. is a senior position in teaching the ideology of ISIS to the young jihadists, the future generation of the extremists that awaits us around the corner. So your, your loyalty is not about picking up a gun and go and fight, but being a teacher, being a governor, being an administrator, cleaning the roads. It is a widespread idea because Area that you can show your loyalty to ISIS. And remember, ISIS in the Islamic State is a government. It's an authoritarian, totalitarian government that is, that has been effective, uh, although that is collapsing at this point in time. You mentioned in one of your articles, sort of you ended it with this, this line that says, that's what's trying to summarize uh, the Islamic State's approach to recruitment. And it says, 
if you think you are ISIS, then you are ISIS and act accordingly. I think that is one of the crucial aspects we need to understand about the Islamic State. You cannot have silent ideological support. ISIS demands the moment you are showing an interest and you've made contact Hmm. and radicalization kicks in, it will have behavioral changes. That's why in teenagers I've worked with, when this contact is, contact is being made, you find your teenager's mood on the uptick. They're in a good mood. All right, Jasmine, you've jumped, you've jumped up. Let me bring you back a bit. No, no, no. So you wrote something for the Daily Maverick just to catch everybody listening up. And it's called How to De-Radicalize, De-Radicalize, sorry. I want to be ISIS recruit. And in this, you, you described how you've worked with, you know, quite a few young people and been called in by their loved ones and family. Um, with a, with a person being sort of at risk uh, of, of of becoming you know an ISIS recruit, um, and that's sort of what you're jumping to. And I'm and I'd love to just find out before you get into your methodology and how you do it. How do how do people find you? How do people get a hold of you? How does a mother, a parent, a grandmother find out about you to call you? What is amazing? Yeah. What is amazing is my first case was from Bella Bella, and that was about two years back, mm. more more or less. And I've done my intervention there. They got hold of me because of the articles and my interviews okay. on TV. So they've just seen and heard of you in the media. And from there on with, it was word by mouth. And the greatest honor I have is when you have these parents sitting in front of you and say, here is my most precious gift of all time. Help me. Help me because no one else will be able to. It is a humbling experience. And I've learned so much from the from the parents and from the teenagers. And I will ever be grateful for them trusting Jasmine to this extent. And what's your mindset going into this? I'm curious. I give you a call at least the first time and I say hi Jasmine. I fear that my son, my sister is is has been exposed to ISIS propaganda or is pursuing ISIS propaganda and is really interested and I think something's up. Would you please come and, and speak to the, what? What's your mindset going into this? Okay. The, the, the most important aspect of this whole process is de-radicalization of your own mind. If you are going to walk into these sessions hmm. with condemnation or putting yourself on a superior or in a superior position or you are going to judge, leave it. You are going to lose the battle because then it becomes a tit for tat, a rumble in the jungle, a boxing fight. That is not what you want. That is your first step. I'm going into this session. I have done and I know my, my ISIS and how it works. If I may interrupt myself, if you do not know how ISIS propaganda works, stay out of a de-radicalization program. But secondly, hmm. win the trust of the parents. It is fundamental. In all eight cases, the parents said the following. We do not trust the police. They're going to arrest my child. We do not trust intelligence. They see them as a source. We need someone that cares. And from there, you start building a relationship of trust with the parents before you even start talking to the teenager. Okay. So you called in, Jasmine Opperman, you called in by a parent and said, hey, this is my, this is my son, this is my daughter. And, you know, what do you, what do you say? 
You say hi. I'm a terrorism risk analyst, and I'm here to de-radicalize you. What do you What do you do? No. What do you say? That's the last thing you ever. I never refer to myself as a terror analyst when I walk into the parents because you must remember, teenagers can be difficult. Oh my word, they can be difficult, and the girls even tougher. But when I walk in, my first interactions with the teenager, we do not mention ISIS once. Not once. But who do you say you are? The parents will yeah. introduce me to the teenager. Okay. The parents introduces me to the teenager. Okay. And from there, because there are already concerns, parents have already, in all eight cases, spoken to the teenager. Okay, so there's been conversations in the family already about these already. issues. Yes. And, and, and what is quite frightening is in, mm. in most of these cases, parents were harsh. They called in the imams. They wanted to take their child away from social network. Were these all Muslim families? All Muslim families. Okay. And I said to them, no. A teenager is becoming a rebel now because the more you tell him not to do a thing, mm. most likely him or her will actually go out and do it behind closed doors. Mm. Start talking to your teenager around the dining room table. Open up the conversation. And I take that back to my own situation where I sit with the teenagers and we just talk. We just generally talk about how they view their community, mm. their family environment, how they view um, their position in society. Mm. And then by creating that environment of talking, I take them to the Islamic State. And then I'm – so I'm working from the known to the unknown mm. where I say, okay, what is your interest then in the Islamic State? And that is where it becomes very tricky. You are not there to convince them ISIS is wrong, irrespective of my analysis of ISIS. That's not the issue here. Mm. The issue is to convince that the photo imprinted by ISIS in the minds of the teenager is flawed. We need to change that. And I do that step by step. Two examples. Teenage girl. What age? I've worked with three, 14, and two 16-year-olds. Three 14-year-olds, two 16-year-olds. Got it. I've worked with them. I take them to a shopping center, and we have a brilliant morning shopping. It sounds crazy, but I'm creating an environment where I'm exposing them again to what they have. Then you take them back to house and say, okay, did you enjoy the morning? And usually they would have had a good time. I make sure they have a good time. Mm. And I said, but what is it in Mosul and Raqqa that is offering you more? And I'm bringing back, without condemnation, the reality that awaits them if they should and want to move to the caliphate. With boys, I play PlayStation games. I'm not, I'm not a good gamer. I lose all the time. But I want to lose. Mm. I make them feel good about themselves. I make them believe in themselves. And I say, okay, you want to be a fighter? Martyrdom. But let's look at the realities of what awaits you. And because I have so much material available on ISIS, I can show them these realities. Without, and I'm, I'm repeating myself, without condemning the caliphate. I'm showing the reality of the caliphate versus the reality of what they have to change the photo. Could you give an example of 
of of some of the photos as you call them uh, that they they've they've developed in their head from from reviewing for whether communicating with 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 representatives online or with just you know watching videos and propaganda some of the pictures you find them forming or narratives they you find them forming and 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 your sort of counter picture or your shall we say the you know original picture of or, or real reality of of what 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 what's the what's actually behind the propaganda they've received? You just give us that contrast. Yes, yeah, sure, I would. I just need to explain. There's one thing that the listeners must understand, and it's a misconception that people get radicalized by looking at ISIS propaganda on social networks. No, it doesn't work that way. There's a process, an interest being grounded by propaganda, only interest. And that interest is where the narrative starts forming. It's the, it's, it's the, way at the start. Yeah, way at the start. It is the moment they make contact Hmm. with an ISIS recruiter that active radicalization kicks in for the first time. That's where you see a change in language Hmm. and a change in behavior. I think it's important for listeners to understand. You will not find a case where there's radicalization by simply looking at an Islamic State video. And interestingly enough, some of these teenagers had contact with ISIS recruiters on South African soil. My question to you, sir, why are they allowed to run and walk around in South African soil? I'm just asking the question. I'm just asking the question. But the image for the teenage girls, if, if I may interrupt, both boys and girls have one common factor, self-actualization. The I, the me, becomes central to the issue. I can make a difference. I can go back to my religious roots and find a far deeper meaning than material possessions. I can go for girls to the caliphate and I can become Recognized in a new family where I am contributing to a Muslim community, to an ummah that is being called by God. Well, I'm not judging. I'm saying what is in their mind. Mm. One of the girls I've had wanted to go and fight. And why? Because the West, according to their picture, is merely discriminating, attacking, and destroying the is- Islam as a religion. That is the mindset that kicks in. Mm-hmm. So for the girls, it is the perfect love. But not only the perfect love, it is to make a difference. For the boys, being taken through PlayStation games that has been reworked by ISIS, being reworked, Call of Duty, Reworked. They become fighters, but it's not enough on a PlayStation game. We can go and die martyrdom for a cause where I, whoever the teenager is, can be recognized as a soldier for religion. And it's that I factor, that photo of being an instant hero. Of being someone fighting for a cause that is start driving a process 
closer and closer to ISIS. And the moment the contact with the ISIS recruiter is made, the photo gets a frame. The religious extremist ideology in which that person will gain meaning and will go to heaven. And don't we all want to go to heaven? And that is what we're talking about. So what I'm trying to do is to say, you know what? Yes, we all want to be important, but you're important where you are. Why do you feel you are not being recognized? And this is one of the findings which I'm at this moment working on a book, if I may interrupt, on this whole process. This is where secularism and capitalism fails to understand ISIS. Nice clothes, PlayStation games, beautiful dresses are not the answer to everything in life. You cannot throw money at all problems. They are seeking a deeper meaning. And that deeper meaning, ISIS steps in and gives it to them. And that photo, I have to rework all the time so that they understand where they are. They can make the same difference, but a complete different frame. And that is my complete and only mission as I go through the process. I mean, you've mentioned that one part of it is, is addressing their present and saying, you know, why do you feel a lack of importance in your present state? Why do you feel perhaps um, not as important as you could be? Why do you feel, why do you, or what are the gaps in their present state or present life or present community that perhaps they're trying to fill with this experience? But I'm curious as to the conversations you have about about the caliphate or about the Islamic State. So I'm not talking about their present life, but okay. and how you how do you you've mentioned not wanting to to have a aggressive head butting conversation around around that. But at the same time you've mentioned in your writing that your your in depth expert knowledge of the workings of the Islamic State also comes in very, very handy and helpful. So how do you how do you have those conversations in a way that's not aggressive and confrontational but is still informational, so to speak? Excellent question. In this process, and you must remember, I'm not talking about a two-week intervention. I'm talking about, from the start, a long term because you have to go back and revisit in one case, it has taken me 11 weeks to get to a point. There, there comes a point in this process where Jasmine sits down with them. And when I say Jasmine sits down, I mean it being humble. And I say, stop now. Let's look at what the Islamic State is presenting and what the Islamic State looks like. You want to be a martyr to the boys. You want to go out and fight. Let's look at how foreign fighters are being used for suicide bombings. If suicide bombings is this high calling, explain to me, and I'm not going to mention the boy's name, explain to me why no senior leader of ISIS has ever executed a suicide bombing. I'm bringing, there's a point where you have to grab mm. the harsh realities with the goals. This photo of this perfect jihadist sitting with a cat and bloody attractive, I must admit. And it's a beautiful photo in my mind. I said, but let's go. You are going to be put in a hostel with a lot of other women. 
they're going to walk in there and they're going to pick you like a prostitute. You're going to be married to him for three or four weeks if lucky and he's dead. And then another one is going to walk in and take you. Is this perfect love? So I'm bringing in, and that's, I'm interrupting myself, apologies. If you do not know these little nuances, if you do not understand how ISIS communicating these propaganda messages, you are going to make a fool of yourself. Because this you have to bring in, into the, into the child's mind, and show them what is actually waiting for them. And what is interesting is the moment you start getting to that point of bringing in the harsh realities, mm. they get quiet. They get silent. In, in one or two cases, I had to withdraw from the process for three or four weeks, leaving them. Think about it. And then only I came back and said, where are we today? In that, in that, just on that example, on, in those sort of three or four weeks, is that, is your returning or your communication still going via the parents or are you not just speaking directly? Directly. Okay. There were cases where they will phone me. Okay. Uh, as recently as two, three weeks back, I had to rush back because the moment I left, contact was made from the ISIS recruiter. And they not, you must remember, we're talking about teenagers. Their minds are not at that level to understand the implications and the consequences of what they are always doing. For them in the beginning, it's a game. It's secret. It's adventure. But before they know it, the adventure turns into a bad reality. So, the moment that contact had, was made, I had to rush back and say, wait, let's sit down and talk. What was said to you? And then you restart the process of bringing in the reality. And, and at that, in this specific case, I said to, to the person, why did the recruiter only make contact with you the moment I left? What does this say to you about his bravery? Why doesn't he talk to me? Tell him I will talk to him now. And so you expose them. Step and I'm, I'm sure I'm answering your question, but it's a complex. Was that in that case? Was that recruiter like a physical recruiter? Were they in the country? Or was that in online? the country? In the country. Okay. Sorry. In the country. Continue. And um, interesting to know that they they knew the moment I left. It it tells you something. So so it is it is and there is no general radicalization program that you can take as a footprint and apply to all. Each case has its own nuances. Has its own accelerators. But the one crucial aspect is how ISIS makes the teenager feel important and how that importance will be recognized. Mm. What is the concern? The concern where we sit in South Africa is a move to the caliphate is not the focus anymore. Wherever you are, we need you. You do not have to come to Raqqa for my soul. We need you wherever you are. So the call for a move has been replaced by a call for an ideological conviction on home soil. And that we need to understand.
you mentioned the the ISIS emphasis on the importance of the individual and sort of feeding feeding that need for importance and self actualization. I'd love if you could speak a bit more about the the emotional and mental journey of these young people. Of course, this is prior to you meeting them, but just from your analysis, you mentioned a curiosity. You mentioned. Uh, an emotional high that comes from it. You also mentioned a period of withdrawal. If you could just speak about yeah. what do you see as the emotional sort of journey of a young person going through this? Like I've just indicated, there is a general process, process taking place. It is interest. Um, interest being generated by social networks. In one case, a group of boys, an innocent game, Sharing who can get the most violent ISIS video from social networks. Innocent game. One boy could not handle it. He had to go a step further. But you've got the secret playing on social networks, getting stuff that is actually illegal, you know, the, the forbidden fruit. Then the interest becomes an obsession. I'll need to know more about this thing that no one wants to talk about. I need to know more without realizing where this is going. And the moment that process crosses the bridge, the line of an interest saying, but this is something I can do, I can believe, you have an emotional hype. You have teenagers laughing, making jokes, why they have a redefined purpose in life. And that is why parents are caught off guard most of the time, because suddenly the teenager... Spends a lot of time with the Quran, religiously, much more aware of what is taking place, not realizing the force behind this has got nothing to do with Islam. It's an extremist ideology. But once the contact has been made, and once the teenager has been called to live ISIS, there's a withdrawal. Friendship changes, dress codes changes, music that they used to listen to changes. And this withdrawal, see a silent teenager moving into a, I, I'm not a psychologist, I don't want to call it depression, but a state of similar like uh, actions. Why? Because in the environment in which they find themselves, they feel they cannot live. ISIS, and they want to live ISIS, but they cannot, uh, for various fear of prosecution, fear of parents, fear of victimization, but at the end it's about, I want to be this new calling, and I can't be it, mm. and hence you find them in the re rooms, spending hours all by themselves. At what point does that turn into conviction? You're describing sort of so what... I'm assuming that if we sort of continue on this process at mm. some point, that converts into a, for not everyone, I imagine for some young people, to a hardcore convenience to say, you know what, I actually can't be a part of this. I actually can't execute this. The moment, and it's only the moment, because let's take a step back. Prior to contact with ISIS, the teenager is left to him herself in interpreting, mm. in giving meaning, religious interpretation to what the teenager is being exposed to. But the moment contact is made, there is guidance kicking in. Someone is saying, this is 
what we expect of you. This is what you can be. And the whole Islamic extremist ideology becomes paramount, becomes pronounced. It now becomes the lens through which you must go back and view what we are telling you. And that is the first sign of radicalization. You've engaged with, with, with eight young people on your de-radicalization. That's correct. Um, you've mentioned that, that two people have, have, of those eight have made the, have made the decision to join the Islamic State. In all of these cases, and compliments to the parents, quick enough, quick enough to pick it up during the initial phases of interest and obsessive interest, mm. which made my work much easier. But in the other cases, they've crossed the bridge. They've crossed the bridge where contact made and they committed they want to go to Syria and they want to show their loyalty to their new family, to their new self-defined importance. That becomes a total different ballgame. Because, yeah, you have to come in harshly without, again I say, condemnation, but show them exactly what is going to happen if they do. That is a long-term process. It takes much longer than the other five cases because here you still have room and time to play with. With a case where contact has been made, you have limited time. You have limited time to convince them that this is an incorrect decision that you are making because you can be just as important within the environment you find yourself. Could you speak a bit more about that interaction with the individuals who've decided, who are committed? Because I could imagine them being, you know, the, the least disinterested in your, in your presence and conversations. On the other hand, antagonistic and just not, you know. So how do you, how do you come into that space where somebody's, where you're now actually at, completely at odds with what their life plan is and what their decision is? What does that interaction look like? And, um, and what, at what point, do you think perhaps they've gone too far and there's, there's not too much you can do after that? To get to st- answer your last bit, I will never give up. I will never give up. I do believe that when we are talking about peeling, people falling for extremist ideology, there's a human side to it. There is, even there, a good in the person. You just need to get to the good. I will never give up on any person that has fallen for an extremist ideology because of that. Example, and I've mentioned that in my article, you walk into a room and she sits there, the girl, and she says to you, so you are here to tell me I am wrong. With typical teenager attitude. Typical. And my response to her was, no, I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong. I want to know more. I want really to know what is it that is making you Feel so good about what you are achieving now. I'm going to learn from you. You're not going to learn from me. So what you're doing is not saying, yes, I am here because you are missing the point. I'm saying, no. Take you, take me and talk to me and tell me why this is happening. So you're putting the teenager on a pedestal. You're making the teenager realize this. That this is not interrogation. It takes time. It is not easy to win the trust of the teenager. I mentioned early on, in one case, 8 to 11 weeks where I had to sit with a boy and trying to work through this process. But 
at the end of a day, your first phase of interaction is making the teenager realizes, I am not here to tell you that you're wrong. I'm not at all. I'm here to learn and understand why you're doing this. And the moment I understand, I would like to talk to you about what is happening. And that is the mindset that you have to have with those that has already made contact. So I know I just asked you this. I just I think I missed the answer. But did the the, the two end up? Did they had they just decided to travel? Or did they in the end make the journey? They did not make the journey. Okay. No, they were directed to travel. That is important. Could you just explain the distinction? I still have to meet a teenager. I know there's been a said a lot about the fourteen year old in Cape Town that getting onto the plane and wanting to go, but. I, in my cases, I have worked with mm. the teenagers that wanted to go to Syria were called upon by the recruiters to make the move. And that is from that point on that they have decided this is the action to be taken. Okay. So self-radicalization is a myth. Radicalization to that extent is always directed by someone taking lead. When you've sort of worked with, with these people and, and let's just you know, assume best case scenario that by the time you've left, you've left them with a sense of valuing their current lives and their families and the communities and sort of in a, you know, closer to the original state of regular teenage life. Um, do, you, do you fear that in your absence that there's that there's room for them to slide back or, or room for the recruiters to, to amp up their efforts, as you mentioned in that one example. Um, I suppose the question is how, what kind of post, post-intervention support do you provide or, or do you think in an ideal world should be available? Ideally, ideally, I wish South Africa had more psychologists that were specializing in this field. To answer that bit, there is no guarantee in any de-radicalization program that it will always have success, that it will always have a sustained success. I don't have that guarantee. I don't have that guarantee in all the eight cases that the teenager tonight disappears. I don't have. All I can do is to maintain contact with the parents and with the teenager. And hopefully they will contact me in time to move back in. But what I do know is if a teenager and one of these eight and they've become like my children, if one of them should decide to leave and they do decide to go to the caliphate, they have my contact details. Because I'm telling you, if they do survive the next three, four months, or the, the, the first three, four months, contact will be made. I want to come back. None of them are emotionally strong enough to deal with the caliphate realities. So, even if I should lose one, and God forbid that happens, and God forbid that one of them dies, and they do make contact to leave the caliphate, but I'm in a position to be able to help and facilitate that. 
My concern is what will happen with two of them when they get back. They'll get arrested. That's not the answer. Encountering extremist ideology. I mean, you mentioned arrest, and you mentioned sort of the, the role of the state in the in the when you meant when we talked about psychologists. At some point, do you think it may be your responsibility to to let to let the authorities know that I I have access to these young people, and it's not impossible that a couple of them may end up causing harm and deciding to take up the ISIS flag locally and, and, and harm some people or travel. At some point, do you think it's your responsibility to to do to, to to act on that side of things and say, hey, perhaps there's the role of a of a counterterrorism operative or a role of the police in this? Very good question. One thing I will not do. Yeah. And I think the listeners, and I want to convey this to the listeners, and, I, and if someone from the government listen. Not impossible. I think the second Please we put listen. ISIS and terrorism in the title, I, I, I'd like to think that somebody will be listening. I will not, I will not expose the parents or the teenagers to either intelligence or law and order. I will not. These parents, my integrity is at stake. These parents are trusting me and there will be more requests. I will not sell them out. I am willing to sit down with them. Who's there? The state? Uh, the state? Yeah. Police? Intelligence? Yeah. And discuss with them on how I do and how I operate. I'm not saying I have the answer. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm merely doing something that I believe works. But an authority, and, and I'm talking government authorities, have no place in de-radicalization programs for as long as communities do not trust them. Because the moment the government gets involved, the teenager will shut down. We, you, if for as long as you have parents saying, we will work with you, but government should not come close for the sake of my teenager. Government will never succeed in facilitating de-radicalization programs. The scary part is, and I'm saying again this, please, to your listeners, I'm being hum humble. Why is it that Jasmine is the only person doing de-radicalization programs in South Africa today? We have 34 South Africans. The caliphate is imploding when they are going to, and they are going to come back. What are we going to do with them? Put them in a prison and make them even more extremist in their belief? The Tulsi brothers. Let's, let's look at the Tulsi guys. Why, when they were stopped at Oliver Tambo International Airport... Those are the two twins who were attempting to make travel to the caliphate. Yes. Yeah. Why were they sent back into the communities without a de-radicalization program? Why were they left to their own devices? We're playing with fire here. We're playing with fire. We need people to start taking seriously what is happening on home swell and start looking at alternatives beyond... Arrest and prosecution. That is not the answer in dealing with extremist ideology. In a scenario where, you know, you know, God forbid, one of these young people um, takes up the ISIS flag, as I mentioned, and, and does something, harms, harms someone in the communities, and the 
and you know the identity of that individual, but have not communicated that with the state prior, would you feel in any way responsible for for that for that act or the thing that had happened, given that you you'd refuse to sort of sell out, as you say, the the teenagers you're working with? You're asking difficult questions now, but you've got a very fair point. I have not been confronted with a situation where I have seen active planning by any of these to engage in an act of violence. If this should happen in future, Mm. if this should happen, I will be in a situation, sadly, to lies. Because the lives of South Africans are important. This is what it's about. Community, about the protection of South Africa against terrorism. So if such actions should come and land on my table, be it via interaction, via the parents, I will, I will have to lie. Yes. So, Jasmine, you have you have pretty strong views on the on the can we say lack of effective counterterrorism strategy. In the, in the South African context. And I'm curious, just as we go to the last portion of the interview, what, what does a, in your view, what does a, a high quality, effective South African counterterrorism strategy look like? Counterterrorism yep. can only work in a broader environment of governance. I'm going to explain this by means of an example. We have Nigerian communities, Somalian communities. Kenyan communities in South Africa. These communities are the key to identification of suspects moving around in South Africa. So, for us to effect and to to, to implement a counterterrorism strategy, these are our partners. But for as long as they are being exposed to attacks and being killed and being victimized, and accusing the South Africa, the police service of actually not being serious in protecting them. Right or wrong is not the issue here. That's not the issue. The perception is the issue. For as long as we are creating a divide in our trust relationship, you can have the best counterterrorism strategy on paper. There's trust between the police and the state and this community you mentioned. And intelligence. We have to build, you, we have to build bridges because those need will be the first to identify people coming in, will be the first to notice change in behavior, but needs to know that when I talk to the police, that there is trust that action will be taken in a fair manner against those individuals. But there is currently no trust. You don't have to spy on mosques and madrasas. Coming from a former spy. Coming from a former spy. But why do you want to do that? Get the community leaders on your side are your greatest assets. So your counterterrorism strategy will have to change. If if I have to talk to the to the police or to the intelligence now and I ask them, you have a counterterrorism strategy. Tell me, do you have an operational room monitoring the top hundred accounts from ISIS, Bokar, okay, Bokar and Charles Pop do not have that many, but Al Qaeda. Monitoring them to understand the broader context. Do you have Arabic translators? And they say to me, no, you're wasting our time. What are you doing? Focusing on cells? That's going to keep you busy for two years, three years? Why haven't I seen arrests? 
Why is it that I don't see action? Why is it that the Tulsi case suddenly now focuses on its radicalization and not actually the attack? I guess the pinball suits didn't go down too well for them. But I just think there is a – what I see from outside, I cannot talk about the capacity now inside, but I think there needs to be a change of mindset of what extremism is about in today's world and what lies ahead. What lies ahead is scary, and we need to realize that. What do you mean by that? As the caliphate is imploding, Mosul will not be a battle until the last ISIS fighter. No. They are already diversifying. They are already spreading into Europe, into Africa, East Asia, Asia. They're doing that. They are creating their footprints. And South African footprint is clearly expanding. Are we on top of the situation? That I would like to ask relevant authorities. What do you say to this to this narrative from some some authorities that that South Africa is is okay that our foreign policy is pretty neutral that we have a you know a strong constitution and open governance and we don't victimize anyone and so we sh- we should be pretty good what do you say to that conventional wisdom meaningless why you can have the best democracy system in the world you can have the most neutral foreign policy you can think of in the world we are living in. Do you really think extremists care about that? Do you really think that the statement that we are this important financial supply line to Shabab and to Boko Haram, we are, that it's, they are so reliant on our financial you mean that the money comes through here yeah. so they wouldn't bomb here because they need... Nonsense! They need so that you don't... They don't need that, that to that extent. An attack on Oliver Tambo International Airport today will have far more impact for these groups as a success than the money flowing from South Africa to these groups. And this is what we need to realize. Democracy does not guarantee... That there will be no attack. Foreign policy does not guarantee that there will be no attack. Extremists do not care about these things. They all will zoom in on where they can create a footprint. They will do it. And the moment there's an opportunity for them to get media attention, they will do it. Wake up, South Africa. This is the reality. You've mentioned a few times the, the, this, this, this line about the Islamic State imploding. Um, could you speak about a bit about the sort of the symptoms that you see that lead you to that that analysis? When the Islamic State, to give to take a step back, announced the caliphate, yep. there was a document that we at track obtained. The title of the document and the, the authenticity of the document verified. Okay. Hundred year strategy in establishing the caliphate. From the beginning. The Islamic State and its leaderships knew full well that it will not be a sustainable project on this in the short term. That the caliphate has been called, allowed them to show them as leaders, themselves, so-called credible leaders of the Ummah, and hence the foreign fighters streaming in, because here is a tangible reality. But the caliphate is losing territory. The world has turned against them, 
And they, you can see as the territory is getting less and less in terms of counter forces, how their propaganda is declining, but how they're spreading their networks. So the caliphate as a tangible governance, as a tangible state, and it's not going to happen within the next six months. Mm. There's going to be bloody battles. And I mean bloody in terms of people dying. Literally, yeah. Literally yes, dying. But the caliphate will not survive for now. But the Islamic State strategy to move from a government mm. in, to a classic terror organization has been proven in Europe. Paris, Germany has been proven in Bangladesh over and over. Has been proven in Africa, if we look at Libya. So what we are seeing is the hybrid nature of ISIS. If we have achieved our governance, we have indoctrinated the youth, we have our new cadre, how are we going to use them beyond Asham, another name for the caliphate? We are going to spread them in terms of organized cells where from where they can execute attacks. I mean, doesn't this surprise you somewhat? I mean, seeing the document that you mentioned and, and, and authenticated, I remember... Some conversations, this might have been a year ago, maybe two years ago, where the, the conventional wisdom and the agreement was that the unique nature of ISIS was this deliberate emphasis on the caliphate and that, and, and to set up the state and to set up a governance structure. Does it surprise you somewhat seeing that strategy document and, and, and doing the analysis that leads you to sort of conclude that, that they've, they've got other plans in terms of their long-term 100-year strategy? Does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. I think what is happening, and it's more specifically in terms of the Western world, mm. complete underestimating the strategic nature of leaders of extremist groups. They, they tend to be classified as madmen, religiously not that well-founded. But there is an understanding. There is a deeper understanding of how to survive Adnani, who has been killed now, has made it clear. ISIS is not reliant on territorial control in Mosul, Raqqa, and said, Libya. Our ideology will survive. The jihad will continue, even if the caliphate disappears. Because ISIS knows if there's one thing they can fall back on in future is to show to its supporters, we have proven to you that the caliphate is attainable. But look what has happened to us with the infidel. The calling will intensify to gain back what has been lost. Jasmine, my final question, um, in the most sort of crude analytical sort of perspective of two sides where you have ISIS and you have everybody else. How are we doing? Are we, are we winning this war? Are we doing well? Are we, are we in trouble? What is your, what is your analysis tell you? For as long, for as long as we see the fight against ISIS as a war only, we are in deep trouble. It goes far beyond the war. For as long as you have European governments acting the way they are against refugees, for as long as you have Western European governments creating a policy environment where Foreign communities feel that they are being discriminated against. We are in trouble. Because the root of extremist ideology in those areas rely on disillusionment, not feeling to be treated equally and fairly, of a religion being discriminated. So the war against extremist ideology 
will never be won the way it's being dealt with now. I want to make, and that, I mean, there are various examples I can mention to you to, to, to substantiate what I'm saying. In Africa, there's always the issue to address the problem of Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, all we need is economic development. This is more than money. It is about human dignity. And it's time that governments in Africa realizes to fight extremism. You can get France to spend millions and the U.S. to spend millions and Germany and the Netherlands. That is not the answer. Those people, in the midst of the conflict, you have to give them dignity and regain their trust because building a road will not do it for you. Jasmine Oppermann, thank you so much for chatting to us. Everybody tuning in, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Daily Maverick Show. Please make sure to share the podcast far and wide. And as always, we love your interaction and questions on at DMShowZA on Twitter. Thank you so much. See you next week. Cliffcentral.com.